You're listening to Group, a podcast about mental illness and mental health. This is the show for the Warriors. Very anxious right now. A lot of anxiety. Um, a little nervous. The obsessives. I brush my teeth 12 times a day and I floss every 90 minutes. And the misunderstood. I'm not depressed. I just feel like I'm in a thick, dark fog and everyone disappoints me and nothing works out. And what's the point of anything anyway? To those of you who are getting your shit together, we're here to support you and we want to hear all the details. Seeing a cognitive behavioral therapist. Her name is Linda. To those of you who are trying something new, we want to know how it's working out. You put me on a mood stabilizer whose primary side effects uh, are cognitive, making it almost impossible to think or talk. No, own! Or should I say, oh no! <laughs> Our goal is to tell your stories, to make you laugh, and to give you an audio hug through your earbuds. I'm Rebecca Lee Douglas. I'm an anxious person. For those of you who are fans of fellow anxious person and member of the group family, Ian Chant, he will be checking in with us next month. But today I'm doing group with one of my favorite humans, friendipist, Catherine Drury. Hi, I'm Catherine, also an anxious person, though with uh, fewer video game references than Ian, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, Catherine is a brilliant therapist and a clinical social worker here in New York. And she's also my personal sounding board for all of the chaos going on in my brain. (laughs) Really sounding boards for each other as we try to figure out life. Yes, very true. (laughs) Uh, So I mentioned in the last group that we're working on a series of episodes about mental health in different communities. Uh, So if you want to chat with us about mental health in one of your communities, please let us know. Go to grouppodcast.com slash contact. Um, Today, group is focusing on mental health in the trans and gender nonconforming community. So we'll talk about what it's like to live in a world where some of the most intimate things about you seem to be up for public discussion. I was at Passover Seder and my uncle like screams across the table. He's like, Dylan, has your junk changed? We'll talk about the psychological benefits related to the increasing visibility of trans people. And we'll hear about some of its detriments. Before, our community was in the shadows. Now it's like, oh, you know, you are a trans person. I know what that means, and I hate that. We'll hear firsthand about what it's like to be a trans individual looking for a good mental health professional. And I went through several therapists over the last seven years. And, you know, each time I got a new therapist, I had to teach them. <laughs> you know, I was the first transgender person that they had ever seen. I went back to school to become a psychologist because I was tired of hearing the horrific stories that people would tell about the ways that they were treated by mental health providers. And if you stick around to the very end, we'll talk about some of our president's recent uh, uh, declarations, (laughs) tweets, (laughs) power trips. Before we start, um, I thought we would do a little vocab session, go over some of the terms and phrases that um, people are going to be hearing throughout the show, just to make sure, you know, we're all on the same page. Everybody knows what we're talking about. Mm, Good idea. Okay, so the first phrase is gender binary. So gender binary is sort of like the classification of gender into two distinct mutually exclusive categories. So that would be the masculine on 
one end of the spectrum, well, not even a spectrum. So that would be the masculine and the feminine, men and women. Right. So the gender binary assumes that if you have anatomically male features at birth, you will grow up to be a man, wear men's clothing, do the things society expects men to do. So uh, another term you're going to hear about is uh, being gender nonconforming. Gender nonconforming means that a person does not conform to society's cultural and social expectations about what is appropriate for their gender. So um, somebody who cross-dresses might be an example of this. Uh, if you are a woman and you wear men's clothing, um, then you're not conforming to the idea of what society thinks women should, should dress like. You know, same if you're a man wearing women's clothing. Um, Catherine and I have a friend who recently buzzed off all of her hair. That's you know, could also be uh, considered gender nonconforming uh, because, you know, society, society's idea of what a woman should be even in 2017 um, is, you know, projected as like, you know, someone with like flowing locks as opposed to, you know, someone with a buzz cut. Exactly. It's also sort of tied to gender expression, which is the way that a person expresses their gender identity through things like clothing or physicality or your personal aesthetic. Um, you can sort of like sh express where you fall on the gender spectrum by your gender expression. Right. And then a person's gender identity refers to how that person sees and identifies themselves. Some people identify as female, some people identify as male, and some people feel as though they don't really fit into either gender category and identify somewhere else along the non-binary spectrum. Another term we're going to be using regularly is cisgender. If you're cisgender, then you identify as the gender you were assigned at birth. Um, so most people you meet walking down the street are going to be cisgender. Uh, Catherine and I are both cisgender. We were assigned female at birth and we identify as women today. Transgender means a person's gender identity differs from the gender that they were assigned at birth. So um, if you are transmasculine, then you were assigned female at birth, but you identify in the male end of the spectrum. Um, if you're transfeminine, uh, then you were assigned male at birth, but you identify on the female end of the spectrum. So in that vein, you can similarly be a trans man or a trans woman. If you go to grouppodcast.com, um, I will include a link to some websites that have explainers there, include some of the definitions just so that, you know, if you need a little reminder, you can go check them out and, and, and just keep them in mind as we're talking. And we just want to make sure that everyone's on the same page. And another super important thing that we want to emphasize is that gender is not tied to sexuality. Right. That's an important point. No matter what your gender identity is, that doesn't say anything about who you're attracted to, who you'll have sex with, who you'll fall in love with, etc. Uh, so I also want to include a trigger warning uh, for people who might be sensitive about hearing about um, suicide. We're, we're not going to go into graphic detail. Um, at one point in the episode, it'll get a little bit more intense, but I'll give you a heads up before then. Another important note, we are... 100% not equating being transgender with having a mental illness. We are discussing mental health and mental illness in the transgender and gender nonconforming community, just as we would discuss mental health and mental illness in any other community. 
Okay? Exactly. Okay, let's go. So if we're going to talk about mental health in the trans community, there are some uh, alarming stats that are hard to ignore, but I I think they're important to talk about at at the top of the show. So, uh, Catherine, are you ready for some of these? Probably not, but go ahead. Okay. Um, So, according to the National Transgender Discrimination Survey, 41% of trans and gender nonconforming individuals attempt suicide in their lifetime. And that's compared to 4.6% of the overall U.S. population, also compared to 10 to 20% of lesbian, gay, and bisexual adults who report a suicide attempt throughout their life. The 41% goes up for people of color, for for people who have disabilities, um, or any other additional minority identity. So right off the bat, that's super upsetting. What's happening with that gap between the 4.6% of the U.S. population and 41% of trans and gender nonconforming folks? Catherine actually put me in touch with one of her former co-workers at Mount Sinai in Manhattan. Okay, so my name is Matthew Oransky, and we are at the Mount Sinai Adolescent Health Center, which is a comprehensive care clinic for young people aged 10 to 24. We have a full range of integrated services, including primary care, medical services, mental health services, uh, and that's all provided under one roof by clinicians who work together, and it's all provided regardless of ability to pay. So we will provide care at no cost if people don't have insurance. And then within our center, we have an integrated transgender health service that provides gender-affirming care, all of that kind of care, uh, but in a gender-affirming way to transgender and gender nonconforming youth. So um, I loved meeting Matthew. I asked him what's going on with these super scary stats. It's been pretty well publicized at this point that transgender youth have higher rates of things like suicide and depression and anxiety, things like that. And I think uh, one misconception that I've come across could be that those things result from being transgender rather than are the result of discrimination or being rejected by family and friends or receiving either subtle or not so subtle messages that people see them as deviant or something like that. So it really is the result of something called minority stress, which is a term that describes that process of discrimination and rejection and invalidation, creating psychological distress. So I spoke with trans activists and speakers all around the country. And coming up, we have some really interesting examples of the kind of minority stress that Matthew's talking about. So I want to introduce a new voice here. Hi, my name is Lily. I am a master's student studying sociology at Stanford. I am a diversity and inclusion consultant. I'm also an activist, trans advocate, and writer. So, yeah, that's me. So Lily is a young trans woman. She came out as trans when she was in high school. And I asked her to tell me about some of the images of trans people that she saw in pop culture and the media growing up. 
Um, and I was thinking like she would she would tell me about trans people in the movies or TV or, or magazines. Uh, you know, maybe she would have some interesting, unexpected examples. But uh, here's here's her response. My first interaction with trans representation anywhere was through the Internet. That was through porn, um, which I suppose is telling. Um, hypersexualized, hyperfetishized, sort of quote unquote chicks with dicks, quote unquote she males, right? Like you know, like it's it's terrible porn. It was garbage porn. But I was I was really kind of drawn into it because it was it was stuff that I'd never seen before. That was the only representation that I had for probably years and years. It was just porn. So um, I'm just trying to think of the the representations of trans people that that we had. Both of us are millennials um, growing up. And the, the two examples that I came up with was um, I remember seeing Silence of the Lambs <laughs> and uh, with Buffalo Bill, who is, you know, like a sociopath who like tries to cut women open and wear their skin. Right. Um, so right there, not, you know, not a not a great ambassador for for your gender identity. No, not at all. Um, and then the other one I thought of was... Um, Boys Don't Cry, 1993. Yeah, that was the, the big one for me. Yeah, so um, Hilary Swank's in it, and she plays Brandon Tina, who is a trans man who um, was raped and murdered. Um, in, in Right, it's based on a true story. Yes, uh, heartbreaking, you know, great that it was a, a true story that was told, but uh, also, like, if the two representations that that you have are um, a sociopath murderer and, you know, this, this individual who is like, you know, killed in this brutal, horrible way, that sort of sucks. I mean, that yeah. sucks a lot. Yeah. Those are the two ones that I could think. I mean, I'm sure there's more, but. Yeah, I was trying to think the only other examples I could remember from my childhood was reading those Tamora Pierce books. Did you ever read those? They were familiar. young adult books. Um, and it was about, I think it was just one woman who dressed up as a, or pretended to be a man, um, or took on a male identity in order to fight as a knight. They like took place in medieval times. That was the only other okay. example. Some I sort of like of. Mulan sort of situation. Yeah, so exactly. Gen- gender non- non-conforming individual, but fictional uh, taking place in medieval times. Right. Yes. And not necessarily okay. transgender. So if those are the representations uh, that you have of your gender identity, that's, you know, that's some serious uh, minority stress right there going on. Absolutely. Not examples to look up to necessarily. Outside of trans representation in pop culture, which is like, you know, obviously distressing, trans people get the added stress of the way that people interact with them, which is often not great if you're trans. So in addition to Catherine's former co-worker, Matthew, um, I also spoke with another psychologist, Lore M. Dickey, who is a transmasculine therapist in Arizona, uh, and he does a lot of clinical work with LGBT clients. One of the things that I often think about is the kinds of ways that people are either interacted with or the ways that they have to interact with somebody else based on what's happening in their life um, can be anything from the level of what's a microaggression. So those are kind of everyday slights that in and of themselves don't seem like that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. So like one of the everyday slights that I get constantly when I come out to somebody as trans is, I never would have known. Uh, Now that sounds like it's a compliment, right? uh Uh-huh. 
But the truth is, what they're saying is, I don't see you for who you are. Or that trans men look a certain way, and that you don't look like that. And so therefore, I wouldn't have expected you to be a trans man. Yep, yep. And, you know, all the way up to discrimination, harassment, violence, that awful stuff. So it makes sense that trans people are at greater risk for depression, greater risk for anxiety, greater risk for suicidal ideation, greater risk for self-injurious behavior, greater risk for substance abuse, all of those, depending on how they're impacting somebody, if they reach the level of clinical significance, are diagnosable and therefore need to be treated by a mental health provider. So Catherine, Lore told me that during his transition, he could only talk about his trans identity with two people a day um, because that conversation was just like so freaking exhausting for him. Yeah, I can imagine. So there were a lot of um, microaggressions from well-meaning people who just were just ignorant about the subject. Um, so for example, Lore was saying that one of the most exhausting things for him was the uh, constant inappropriate questions. I've had people ask me about my genitals. And it's the question of, have you, quote, had the surgery? Mm -hmm. That's asking about my genitals because they don't realize that, you know, for a transmasculine person, there's chest masculinization surgery, Mm -hmm. there's hysterectomy, and then there's genital surgery. And that's generalizing what transmasculine people might engage in. Yeah, and also quite a few people who identify as transmasculine are, yeah, are not going to have all of those you know, different or maybe surgery. even, yeah. or maybe even any of those. Why do you think people are so fixated on that? Why do you think that's a question that comes up so often? I think part of the reason is because they aren't in their head. They're trying to make sense out of who you are, and uh, the pejorative part of this is that if you haven't had those surgeries, then you aren't yet a real man or woman. Mm. That's my sense of what it's about. It's also a morbid and inappropriate curiosity that people have that it frankly is none of their business. If it's mm-hmm. not okay for me to ask you about your genitals, yeah. and I'm guessing it's not because that's just not something you normally talk to people who you've never met before about. So why is it okay then for people to ask a trans person about theirs? I mean, can can you imagine if, if strangers you just met asked you what your genitals look like? <laughs> um, I cannot, actually. Yeah, so I know a lot of people are well-intentioned when they're saying this, uh, but they should know that it's, like, not a, not a cool thing to, to ask because, you know, you think about how you, how you would feel if uh, someone you just met asked you about your, like, most intimate physical situation. Right. And it's such a small or it's only one part of the trans experience and the trans identity. Your gender is about so much more than just your reproductive organs. So it it did seem like it's a pretty common theme with trans people, though. People are always asking about the surgery. I spoke with Dylan Caput, who's a transmasculine teacher in New York. Um, So I've started telling people who are like, have you had the surgery that, yes, in fact, I have had my wisdom teeth out. Because what what do you say to that? Like, do you mean top surgery? Do you mean bottom surgery? Do you mean wisdom teeth surgery? Like, do you mean a hysterectomy? Do you mean, like, have you ever had a knee replacement? Like, there are thousands of surgeries. I have no idea what you're referring to. But (laughs) it is pretty fascinating how often people ask questions about my genitals. Like, I just, I don't... 
Like, do people in general just walk up to each other on the street and say, like, how's your penis doing today? Because I don't think they do. So why are they asking about anything that's underneath my underwear? I don't know. But people are very curious about trans people's genitals. And they don't seem that curious about other people's genitals. Why do you think that is? Do you have a hypothesis? (laughs) Apparently, it's very fascinating to people when maybe their genitals don't match their gender expression. Um... I was at Passover Seder and my uncle like screams across the table. He's like, Dylan, has your junk changed? And I'm like, I'm not answering that here. We're like in the middle of like prayer. And he decided that was the appropriate time to have that conversation with me. But strangers, like if my friends are curious, I will absolutely tell them. I'm a very open person. I'm happy to talk about that. But it's like when strangers like read something I wrote online about being trans and they comment and they're like, Have you had the surgery? I'm like, just stop. More than ever before now, uh, people know what it means to be trans. They can identify that word. They can sort of explain it. We have more characters on TV and in the movies who are trans. Um, More celebrities are are coming out as trans. It it seems like that could potentially be good for minority stress. Mm. but it definitely has its downsides as well. So um, here's Lily again, the master's student from Stanford. The visibility of trans people, whether that's through people like Caitlyn Jenner or Laverne Cox or Janet Mock, has really gone up. A lot of advocates say that this is a good thing. This increases people's knowledge of trans people. Now a lot of people in the United States can say, oh, I know what transgender is. The part that's not talked about as much is this idea that before right? Our community was in the shadows. And when you are in the shadows, there are some perks, (laughs) i.e. people are are less likely to be violent against you because they don't really know that you exist. Now we are increasingly targets. Now it's like, oh, you know, you are a trans person. I know what that means. And I hate that. Whereas in the past, they'd say like, what the hell is a trans person? I don't know anything about that. And maybe you would still get violence. But now there's definitely, it feels like there's definitely more directed violence at trans people. We see people debating trans identity in very harmful ways on the news. We see op-eds all over the place. We see women calling us, you know, men who are pretending to be women, to infiltrate women's communities, and really puts especially those most marginalized members of our communities at really heavy risk. Okay, so so let's recap for a second, because I know there are a lot of characters right now. There are more characters than a group usually has. Mm, good idea. Dylan, who we just met, who's the teacher in New York. Dylan is the person whose uncle asked them about their junk at the Passover dinner. Uh, Dylan uses they, them, their pronouns, which some trans people choose to use because, you know... Um, it's not part of the gender binary that we were talking about before. So they mm-hmm. don't necessarily identify with the fully with the he, him, his pronouns. And they don't really feel like those like truly represent who they are. So Dylan is transmasculine, uh, goes with the gender neutral pronouns. Lily is the master's student at Stanford. Uh, she uses she, her, hers pronouns. Matthew is your colleague, her former colleague, who is a cisgender therapist who works with a bunch of young gender nonconforming individuals. He uses the 
he, him, his pronouns. Uh, Lore is the therapist in Arizona. He uses he, him, his pronouns also. Okay, so are we good so far? Yes, okay. got it. Okay, so now I want to introduce another character. This is Kathy. My name's Kathy Serino. Um, I'm a transgender woman living here in central Missouri. I advocate locally and on a state level and national level for the LGBT community. I've been doing it a couple of years now. So uh, Kathy spoke to me a lot about um, how she was psychologically affected by being uh, misgendered, which or referred to as a man uh, when she's a woman. So um, I haven't met Kathy in person, but uh, she's a public figure. Um, she's an activist. I've seen a lot of photos of her. Um, so Kathy has uh, long hair. She dresses in women's clothing. She's had hormone replacement therapy. So like her features are, are soft mm-hmm. and she has um, she has breasts and her name um, is Kathy. I mean, so um, this is her chosen name. So sorry, dudes out there who are named Kathy. I know this is maybe like gender normative, but that's usually a lady's name. So imagine, given who she is, uh, how she presents herself, imagine how, how it affects her when people refer to her as a man. Pronouns are basically like one of the biggest things. I had a phase here about two, three months ago to where I got, you know, misgendered like 15 times in one week. It was at work and I was dealing with the public. You know, they'd call me sir or he was he, you know, he, him pronouns. And my job ended up moving me to another area where I didn't have to deal with the public. I told him that, yeah, you either got to move me or I'm going to quit. You know, because this is messing me up. Went through a lot of depression that week. Major depression. So I asked Matthew to break down how misgendering someone can affect their mental health. Simply put, people tend to feel better when who they are is being seen and validated. I think what can be really hard, and I myself as a cisgender male don't fully understand at all, but I think it can be really hard to just to not be seen. And I think it's particularly difficult when you've made it known who you are and people still don't accept that particularly if there's someone very close to you, like a family member. I had one young person tell their parents that every time they get misgendered by them, it's like being stabbed with a dagger each time. And that has always stood out to me as being really powerful um, and being a really kind of apt description of what it's like for some people. Um, Okay, so back to Kathy. She's a 49-year-old trans woman. She knew she didn't identify as male as early as like when she was a little kid. And she was able to put the word transgender to those feelings uh, when she was in her 20s. But she didn't come out as trans until 2010. Uh, So I asked her why she waited so long. And trigger warning here, she does mention suicide. Over the years, especially once I knew what it was and knew that there was something I could do about it, but I also knew it would destroy, you know, destroy my family. I have five children. My biggest fear was that I was going to lose them. You know that they're that they weren't going to want nothing to do with me, and because uh, I had heard stories of other transgender people at that point, you know, that had lost everything. Um, the depression just kept building and building over the years. Um, then back in 2010. Um, I couldn't take it anymore, and I attempted suicide. Almost didn't make it, you know. They said if I'd gotten there, like you know, if they had, hadn't found me, you know, when they did, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have made it. Um, 
and when I woke up in the hospital, um, it was like two days later that I woke up, you know, that's kind of when I came to the realization, you know, the heck with it. I'm either going to be myself or I'm not going to be nothing, you know. <laughs> and then it was at that point that I decided I'm going to come out and as as a fallback, if it didn't work, then well, then I would just finish the job of killing myself. Was your family accepting when you came out? I lost a lot of people. Um, I lost a lot of people when I came out. And uh, I still, you know, and some of them I never did get back. Um, include include my oldest son. My oldest son hasn't want, wanted nothing to do with me since I came out. I was surprised, like, with my, you know, like my daughters. They came around real quick, you know. And uh, my mother, she was great right from the start. And, um, see, my mom was somebody I was worried about, too. You know, on how she was going to take it and everything. But she, you know, she was great with it. So was it difficult for you to find a trans-friendly therapist? Um, not so much trans-friendly as that they just didn't know how to deal with me. Um, they, you know, they didn't know nothing about trans people. So they would just treat the symptoms and not actually treat, not be able to talk to me about my experiences, you know, as a transgender person. And I went through several therapists over the last seven years. And, you know, each time I got a new therapist, I had to teach them. <laughs> you know, I was the first transgender person that they had ever seen. They had no formal training in it. And I basically had to teach them, you know, about transgender people. And like the surgery theme, problems with care were another common theme that, that kept coming up with the people I spoke with. Um, here's Laura again. I think one of the challenges that trans people face is because there's such a complicated history with mental health providers, it's entirely possible that people are very reluctant to seek care when they need to seek care. And part of the challenge around that is that, uh, you know, are they going to be seen in a positive light or is the fact that they have depression or anxiety or even grief around their process going to be assumed to mean that they aren't really trans? The problem is <laughs> when a trans person comes in, oftentimes the provider is expecting the trans person to give them the education to understand what's happening in their life. Well, again, just like why is it okay for you to ask me about your genitals, why is it okay for you to assume that I'm going to provide you the education that you should have gotten for yourself on this particular area of content? I went back to school to become a psychologist because I was tired of hearing the horrific stories that people would tell about the ways that they were treated by mental health providers. and. I just said, something's got to change. And I learned at a very young age, in Girl Scouts, by the way, um, that if you want to be, if you want to fix something, you need to be part of the solution. And it's not just a problem in the middle of America, in, in Missouri, where Kathy is, or in Arizona, where Laura is. Um, Matthew says he s sees it all the time in New York as well. Yeah, especially with young people, I would imagine. 
it's surprising how high of a number of our referrals come from other therapists where the teenager has come out to them and they don't feel equipped to handle it. There are also plenty of therapists in New York who still feel uncomfortable taking a gender affirmative stance in general. It's a it's a major, major issue. I have recently concluded that one of the ways I can best contribute to a more socially just world for TGNC people is focus more on training other therapists. There is definitely research out there showing huge barriers to gender affirming care and that many uh, transgender and gender nonconforming individuals will not seek medical care, will not seek mental health care due to past experiences with non-affirmative providers. There are obviously a lot of great mental health professionals out there who are trans competent. So I asked Lore like how to go about finding them. And so he recommended one of the best ways is word of mouth, just so right. um, to, to join a community, whether it's online or in person, and just ask around and see if uh, other people have had positive experiences with, with therapists. Or if you find a therapist through other avenues, like your health insurance or referral from your doctor, you can also call that person and ask some questions like, could you give me a sense of your approach to work with trans clients? Or what is your understanding of the gender non-binary spectrum? And if <laughs> they don't really seem to understand what you're talking about, that might not be a person from whom you want to seek services. Yeah, I feel like if... You know, if you call someone up and ask them about the gender non-binary spectrum and and they're like, uh, uh, the spectrum, then you probably know that that's not the therapist for you. Exactly. I could also say for clinicians out there, if this is a group of people who you're interested in working with, but don't feel like you have those tools, like Matt mentioned, there are trainings out there. There are, are people who are trying to better equip therapist to, to work with some of these issues. Unfortunately, if, if you're a young person and you're going to see a mental health professional, you, your parents are usually the ones who are, are picking out who's going to help you get help. So I want to go back to Lily. You know, again, she came out as trans when she was in high school, but I'll let her share her full coming out story. I actually came out as a gay man first. That that was when I was 15. I, I guess I wasn't a man. I was a boy. And I, I came out as gay first because that seemed to me to be the only way to get toward a gender presentation that seemed more in line. So I was like, I want to wear women's clothing. That was my like thought, right? I want to wear women's clothing. I want to wear really tight fitting stuff. And at the time, I didn't have the, this conception of my identity as um I was a boy and boys can't be girls, right? So what's the only way boys can wear girls clothing? Well, if you're gay, I guess. So for the longest time before that, I would tell people like, yeah, I'm pretty normal. You know, I do normal guy things. Also, it'd be pretty nice to be a girl, but like, whatever. That's pretty normal, right? Haha. <laughs> and then I was on Wikipedia and I stumbled across the word transsexual. That was the first word that I ever saw re regarding trans things. And it was like a lightning bolt hit me. I was like, holy crap, this is real. Real people do this. Holy crap, it's not normal, but there's a name for it. And this sounds like me. I'm really claustrophobic. I hate being in the closet once I'm aware that there is a closet to be in. 
So the second that I figured out that this could have been me, I was just like, all right, that's it. I'm out. Mm -hmm. So was your community, you know, supportive? Was your family supportive? No. Oh, man. Um, yeah, it's, I, I don't blame them for, for it. I think my family has a lot of history and has a lot of experience that's kind of different from this world of, you know, trans identity and the trans community and with LGBT identities in general. So I don't really hold any hard feelings, but yeah, it wasn't particularly well accepted. It wasn't particularly well understood um, by my family. So Lily's family put her in therapy and this wasn't a, a great therapist for a young trans woman. She says that her parents were hoping that the therapist would tell them that she was, you know, quote unquote, faking it. And the therapist didn't do that. But Lily also says that she wasn't supportive or affirming either and um, really didn't help with her growing depression that she was beginning to feel. For talking about symptoms, I think mine were numbness, um, kind of retreating away from things that I had liked before. I also think I was dissociating like 24 seven, like I, I just didn't feel like life was real. So I would, you know, get up, shave my legs, make myself breakfast and it never really tasted good, but I had to do it. And I went to school and I did well in all my classes, but I didn't care about any subject. I ate my lunch. I didn't really talk to anyone. I went home. My parents yelled at me. I cried a bit. I went back to bed. I stayed up all night. I did my homework and like repeat, right? It was just really, you know, not that it was sad. Like I, I didn't have too many moments of like, like, like very active sadness, but it was just, it was, it was very gray. I think if you want to describe that, like that's the part in the movie that would be totally grayscale. A big factor associating the mental health and well-being of transgender youth and gender non-conforming youth is the level of family acceptance or rejection. Here's Matthew again. There have been several studies that have shown associations between the level of family rejection and then the level of things like depression, anxiety, and suicidality. In addition, there are studies of younger transgender youth that show that those who have supportive families and have been allowed to transition socially have the same rates of depression and anxiety as their cisgender peers. So I think we have a pretty good sense that one of the big factors impacting mental health amongst TGNC people is family acceptance or rejection. So I want to introduce a new concept here um, that most of our trans listeners will be very familiar with, but I think quite a few of our cisgender listeners um, might not know about. So that's gender dysphoria. I'm going to have Matthew explain the concept. And he references the DSM-5, which for new listeners is the most recent diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders, which is, Catherine, the, the diagnostic tool that mental health professionals use to, to like diagnose people in the U.S., right? Correct. So gender dysphoria is a diagnosis in the new DSM-5. Basically, the sort of short version is that what's being diagnosed is the felt distress, so the distress that somebody feels about the mismatch between their sex assigned at birth and their gender. 
So the old diagnosis was gender identity disorder, which a lot of people did not like because it pathologized the identity. And what has been changed in the new DSM is that what we are diagnosing now is the distress that people feel about the mismatch between their physical body and their gender. Let's just break this down to make sure that people understand it, because I think it is a little bit complicated. Right. So under the term gender dysphoria, the identity itself is not the disorder. Instead, it's the extreme distress related to gender identity that is the disorder and therefore the diagnosis. Yes. And uh, which I thought was really interesting because like the distress isn't like necessarily inherent. Like it's not you are trans and therefore you will have uh, gender dysphoria. Right. Unlike other disorders in the DSM, the distress is entirely environmental. Uh, Which is so wild that, like, it's like being created by your environment. Exactly. So I I read this really interesting study when I was doing research for this um, by Jeffrey Reed, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Mexico. But he's actually just around the corner from us right now at at Columbia. He did this study where he... um, did all these clinical interviews with trans individuals about um, their gender identities and like how they grew up and their environments. Um, And he created this uh, mathematical model. Uh, I want to read this quote he has about his findings. So he says, we found distress and dysfunction were very powerfully predicted by the experiences of social rejection or violence that people had, but they were not actually predicted by gender incongruence itself. So, so basically, the thesis of this is, if you remove the stigma, if you remove the crappy treatment, um, if you remove the bad environment, then the dysphoria goes away. So it's important to note that even today, not all trans individuals experience distress related to their gender identity. We should make it clear that just like everybody else, trans people can be totally mentally healthy, completely not have any dysphoria, not have any anxiety or depression, um, or they can have mental health issues that are completely unrelated to their gender identity. Take our friend Dylan. So I was in therapy for years and none of it had to do with my gender identity. In fact, and in therapy now, a lot of it doesn't have to do with my gender identity. Like a lot of my anxieties and things that I get depressed about are completely not tied to my gender identity. They're more tied to, a lot of them are tied to personal relationships, romantic friendship. For some people who are trans, who are depressed and anxious in correlation with their gender dysphoria, when they start steps to transition some of the anxiety and depression kind of backs off um and since mine are not super tied it means that like that is not what's happening um and so like despite feeling kind of better in my body I'm still very depressed and anxious a lot of the time so it kind of put me in like a very unique situation I I have a lot of friends who have started hormones or gotten surgery and then felt like almost completely like anxiety and depression free. Um, and that's not, <laughs> not what happened. Yeah. So Dylan is lucky enough to experience anxiety and depression completely on its own, uh, unrelated to any of the gender identity stuff. But the experience they're talking about, about uh, anxiety and depression getting better once you're in a more supportive environment and and you're able to take control of your physicality through like hormones and stuff. uh, That's pretty much the experience that Lily had. Uh, And Lily references HRT here, which is 
an abbreviation for hormone replacement therapy, which Lily started as an undergraduate at Stanford. The gender dysphoria was pretty much over when people started using she, her pronouns. People at Stanford also validated my gender identity a lot more. They used the right pronouns. They affirmed me. They were like, well, I've never thought of you as anything but a woman, so why would I call you anything but a woman? And I was, I was stunned. In my freshman year, after being on HRT for about a good year, imagine my surprise looking at myself in the mirror and going like, yeah, I really like that. That's great. I don't want to do anything else. Hard stop, period. And so that was it. In the past, in high school, a lot of the depression was, I think, driven by helplessness and feeling like no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't do anything. No matter who I talked to, no one would support me. Um, no matter no matter where I looked, I wouldn't find a community. I think that was a lot more salient then, though I still definitely feel some of those things now, probably not in a way that would be called depression. Another interesting component from a treatment perspective is that trans people often need that dysphoria diagnosis in order to undergo hormone replacement therapy. Not always, but often. And that was also the case when gender identity disorder was the diagnosis in the DSM. The need for that label often deterred people from receiving hormone replacement therapy from a professional. Yeah, which is really interesting because I guess before it was changed from gender identity disorder to gender dysphoria, like it was like, okay, we're saying that your gender identity identity is a psychological disorder and you need to get it diagnosed before we're going to give you hormone replacement therapy um, or or you can go undergo any gender reassignment surgeries Um, right like someone had to tell you that you were trans yeah in in a like pathologizing way in a way that it's saying that it's a disorder and like it's it's just so wild to me that even now like you you have to get this dysphoria diagnosis you know, you have to get a psychological di- diagnosis in order to go through with this medical process. Right. Um, it's extra confusing because if you are a trans person and you're not distressed, if you are in a supportive community, if you don't have anxiety or depression, if you're comfortable with yourself and you just like want to move forward and get hormones or surgery or whatever, then you have to get, you still have to get a psychological dis- diagnosis that says that you have a mental health disorder. Um which is strange. Right, or that you have this dysphoria whether or not you're actually in distress. Okay, so here's Lily on that. There's so many trans people I know in my life who don't experience gender dysphoria, and this kind of medical model really forces people into boxes. And so I have so many friends who have just lied through their teeth to professionals because they need care. They desperately, desperately need hormones. And so they'll say things like, I hate my body. I've always thought I was the opposite gender. I've always wanted to wear this. And it's just this like really kind of outrageous caricature because those are the hoops you need to jump through for the professionals to tick the box and go like, all right, you seem to be, you know, a qualified trans person. Then you get your meds and you're like, okay, goodbye, sucker, right? Like, I didn't mean any of that. But, you know, like, that's, that's really not how I think it should work. So, so Catherine, we also have to talk about the dysphoria diagnosis to get some sort of, you know, medical treatment if you're a trans person um, in the military. And I think, you know, it's particularly significant to talk about right now, given that our president just uh, banned um, all transgender people from the military, which um, uh, he I actually uh, don't think he can do, (laughs) especially not via Twitter. 
I don't I don't think that's legally binding. I don't think sending out a tweet necessarily makes things official. Um, okay, because he said that their medical costs were, yeah, were too expensive, which was interesting on like several levels, obviously, you know, we don't have to get into this. But like, you know, his his logic in this post was that yeah, the, their medical costs were, were too, too much. It's destroying the military, trans people. It's so expensive. So, right. you know, but, um, you know, the Washington Post was, was talking about how erectile dysfunction drugs that, that the military is also paying for these medical expenses for so many people who are involved in the military are, are 10 times more expensive, at least. Um, there are all these additional issues uh, with, with, dis, with the dysphoria diagnosis in the military. So I, I want to go back to my conversation with Lore. Now, the issue with the diagnosis in the military, uh, trans people who are currently active duty or probably in the reserves as well, can now technically openly serve in the military. And they can get some medical treatment as long as they have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Well, you know, here's where the challenge comes in a place like that. They get a diagnosis that says they have, and I'm going to quote, clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. Well, what does that mean in the military? Yeah, then it's like, oh, maybe you can't do your job. Then you have a mental illness. Yeah. So we've just put them in a catch-22 position that if we're saying that there's clinically significant distress, that means that can they even do their job? And the way that I like to explain that is, you know, what is the impairment about? It's not really about can they do their work because they're probably doing their work just fine, Mm -hmm. you know, with the exceptions of when they're having to deal with discriminatory um, situations in the workplace or mistreatment from their um, fellow enlistees or, you know, whomever they're with. So Laura said that ideally it would change from a psychological diagnosis to a medical diagnosis. That seems to be the trend. It it seems that in the next international classification of diseases, um, which I don't know, Catherine, like how how therapists think about that, but it, it seems like it's like sort of the international DSM, right? Yeah, or it's like the DSM for doctors or medical providers. Um, Working in a medical clinic, I had to use it to some extent. Okay, so um, so hopefully, if if it happens with the with the international classification of diseases, the ICD, um, if it changes to a medical diagnosis, hopefully it'll happen with the with the DSM too. Right. Um, It seems like quite a bit less pathologizing if you're going to undergo like you know this medical treatment that you don't have to get this diagnosis of a psychological disorder so i want to end with some advice from our guests to trans folks who might be listening and dealing with some of the mental health issues that we talked about so first there's lily i asked her what advice she would give to her teen self I would tell her to find the little things and to hold on to them. So things like tweeze your eyebrows and maintain them. And and if everything else goes to shit, like at least know that your eyebrows look fly aff, right? Like look really good. Um, 
you know, just finding little ways to affirm your gender identity, paint your nails, or if you can't paint your nails, paint your toenails, right? Like no one's going to see those, you know? So these, these little things, I think that don't feel like much, but that add up, I think are really important. Oh, find a community on the internet. I, I think that's what saved my life. I think that's good for a lot of other people. And now there are more and more resources on the internet. Now there are more and more trans people on the internet. And I think that's that's a really important community and a really important resource. And as you know, the world gets more connected, I really think that this is one of the biggest things we can do for those trans trans women who don't have support um, in their you know offline communities. And for our cisgender allies out there, here's lore on how to support a loved one if they come out as trans or gender nonconforming. To say you know, this doesn't change my relationship with you at all. I still love and care for you. And please let me know how I can be supportive. You can also write your elected officials about some of these new policies to make sure that they don't come to fruition. It seems like there there are some positive signs um, moving forward. I guess I would say in some ways we're moving in a positive direction. I think there's definitely increased awareness of trans issues. I think it's much more sort of in the media. Um, I think teenagers today, at least in New York City, sort of understand to some extent what it means to be transgender. That being said, I still think there's a ways to go. If you look at recent, you know, GLSEN, which is the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network, I mean, their most recent school climate survey still, I think you'd have to check, but I think still has the majority of students hearing transphobic comments, um, being bullied because of their gender expression, gender identity, things like that. So I think, you know, while there has been some progress there's in certain ways there still is uh a ways to go yeah but i think that definitely among this generation has like a more fluid conception a more fluid and non-binary conception of what gender is at least in new york city so generally it, it seems like if you're trans and you're in a big city uh things should be slowly improving but many trans people like Kathy are not in big cities. Like my goal, like in all the advocacy work I do, yeah, I mean, because, you know, I'm almost 50 years old. So as far as getting equality and all that, it's not going to affect me, you know, for as long as what it would my grandchildren's generation. And that's basically what I'm doing all this work for is for that generation so that they don't have to grow up with, the, you know, the same discrimination and hatred that I did. Subscribe to Group on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcasts. Uh, please leave us a review. If you subscribe, you'll immediately have the next episode on your phone, on your computer when we post it on September 1st. You can also go and listen at grouppodcast.com. Uh, if you want to share your story with us or you have a topic that you think we should talk about, um, let us know at grouppodcast.com contact. Thank you to Faith Rusk for her help with the show. Thanks also to Shane, who is a young trans artist from Ohio and a fabulous storyteller. I interviewed him for the show and we weren't able to fit his story in, but uh, I, I'm going to be linking to some of his videos that he shares about his experience um, on our website. So go check them out there. Um, they're, they're really powerful. Uh, on the website, you can also find some additional content related to the episode. 
the music in this episode is by The Losers, uh, which is is wild because you know we're we're just winners, Catherine. <laughs> uh, but but nonetheless, it's uh, it's by The Losers. <laughs> Thanks also to Ian Chant, even though he's not with us this month, he is in our hearts. We'll talk to you again soon. But in the meantime, be kind to yourself. Take care of yourself. Everything is going to be okay. <laughs>